So today, we're wrapping up our time here. We've been in a series on Jesus called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, a title we ripped off with great gratitude from Marcus Borg, the brilliant Jesus scholar who, who left us in 2015. And so what we're gonna do today is, I'm just gonna do a question and response time, uh, which means if this goes poorly, it's kind of on you too, because <laughs> if you don't ask questions, this will be boring. So here's how we're gonna handle it. I'll start with a question from the room, and then I'll go to a question. I'm not like watching Netflix here. I'll go to a question online, and if we have time, I had a couple sent in that we'll get to um, before the end, I know that they want us to be done in time to make it to the open house. So um, if, I start, um, if I start going too long, will somebody just be like, hey, time? Because I, 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 this is my favorite thing to do and we can do this all day. So does anybody have a Jesus question that, you, that is brave enough to break the ice in the room here at Third and Lindsley? Yes, I see that hand. Yeah, great point. What did, you, what did Jesus say about the Bible? Jesus quoted the Bible a lot. Sometimes Jesus changed the Bible when he quoted it, uh, which is a pretty cool thing to do. Um, and so what did Jesus say about the Bible? So for Jesus, the Bible would have been um, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and it's, it would have been, you know, here's what's interesting. We think about the Bible as being a finished deal, right? When Jesus lived, the Bible, even the Hebrew scriptures, the canon wasn't finished. The, the writings section wasn't considered part of the, their, their scriptural canon until around the year 100. So after the life of Jesus, quite a bit of time after the life of Jesus. I think Jesus revered scripture, but I think Jesus would have said that, that scripture should be used for liberation and healing and not to harm. So when Jesus would quote scripture, sometimes he would clip off parts that it seems like he didn't agree with. Right, and in the synagogue, in Luke chapter four, Jesus announces, he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he announces liberation, good news preached to the poor, release for the prisoners, the year of the Lord's favor. The next line is the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus gets to that part of the scroll, he's like, nope. Rolls it back up, hands it off, right? So I think Jesus would have had a, a, a reverence for scripture, but I think Jesus would also have seen it, which is actually a really Jewish thing is to see this is something we're negotiating. Um, it, it is not something that we just look at and is static and it tells us what to do. It's something we wrestle with, we engage with, we turn and, and you know, we spin it in the light a lot. We try to figure out what might be going on and what might we see this time. I think that would be Jesus' approach. And I think it's really sad. Um, and you'll hear me talk about this a lot probably today, depending on the questions. But when the, the Jesus movement became all Gentile, we essentially lost so much, like everything specifically with who Jesus was and what he was up to and what he meant by anything. Um, and so it's, it's true. Um, uh, John Shelby Spong has this great book called Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. And he says, essentially, nobody would have read the Bible. No, no Jewish person has ever read the Bible or would read the Bible like Gentile Christians ended up reading it. And so if we're going to follow a Jewish, Jewish Jesus, we need to understand how Jesus would have understood and how he would have been understood through that lens and then we can figure out what to do with him today. Um, but yeah, that, I think he would have had a reverence and also a willingness to wrestle and poke and prod and question uh, scripture. Uh, let's see, do we have something? Okay, we have one online uh, from Randy. Hey, Randy, I hope you're doing well. I've been listening to Bart Ehrman. Do you think Jesus was left on the cross or buried in a mass grave or, and did he resurrect? Oh, good, it's an easy one. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's like going, Jesus, what's up with that, right? Um, so here's the thing. I don't think we know the answer to that question. Wh- whoever answers that question is answering it just purely with conjecture. Uh, and it can be informed by what we know of history. So the Gospels talk about Jesus being taken down from the cross and placed in a, in a grave. Um, that tradition of the tomb seems to have begun with the Gospel of Mark. And the reason I say that is because in our earliest text from Paul, we have that Jesus was buried, and my Eastern Kentucky comes out real strong when I want to say buried. Um, <laughs> he was buried, um, but he, Paul, does not under, Paul doesn't have an empty tomb story. For Paul, it seems like resurrection uh, is uh, an ascension or one movement, right? God, Jesus was executed, and God raised him up, is the way Paul uses the language. Um, so what happened to Jesus after he died? I, I don't know. I, historically, what the, it seems like would have happened is he would have maybe been left on the cross or taken down and put in a, a mass grave. That's what many scholars say. Uh, other people think that possibly his, some, I mean, here, here, here is the sad detail. All of his disciples bailed. All of them except for, according to the scriptures, the women. Um, and so maybe they tried something. That's just kind of an unknowable. You can go with what, History seems to indicate, you can go with what the gospel tradition seems to indicate, and you are simply making a statement of belief or faith. We don't have that information. Um, Did Jesus resurrect? Yes, I think think Jesus did. Well, I don't like the word resurrect, uh, because I think it implies something. I think Jesus was raised up, and I think that that can mean lots of things. Uh, So we talked about this, I think, on Easter. the big question people ask is, if you had set up a camera outside of the tomb, assuming there was a tomb, on Easter morning, what would it have caught? Uh, would it have caught anything? Would there have been like a big flash of light, an angel shows up, the stone rolls away? Would that have happened? Or would it, it, does resurrection raised up mean something else? That's another thing. And here's, here's another interesting tidbit scholars will point out. Um, the resurrection is never narrated in the text, right? What happens is they go to the tomb, it's empty, and then they meet Jesus. But there's not a, a, a picture of the resurrection happening. Like, what did Jesus do? Like, what was that like for Jesus? Um, so I believe that the Christian move, what became the Christian movement is not explainable if the people who knew and loved Jesus if they did not have experiences of him after his death, I don't think this is explainable. The real debate and question is what were those experiences? Um, and, uh, you know, were, Marcus Borg would say, people say, well, were they, were they just visions? And Borg would always say, that's somebody who's never had a vision. <laughs> if you had a vision, you wouldn't be going, it was just a vision. Um, those can be transformative. So here's what I'll say, because I, I think this is ultimately... We could, I could spend the entire time this week, next week, and the rest of eternity talking through the ins and outs of, you know, was this a literal bodily resurrection? Was this something else? Uh, I don't know because nobody knows. We, people make faith claims and they set themselves in spots based on what they believe, and that's great. What I want to say when this question comes up is believe whatever you want about whether or not a literal stone was rolled away and a literal body was resuscitated and came out of a tomb uh, or not. Believe whatever you want. If we don't figure out how to talk about what Easter means, I mean, there's a reason why clergy hate Easter often. I love it now, but lots of pastors are like, oh, Easter and Christmas. 
People are going to expect me to say things that I don't think I can say with integrity. Um, and that's just not how I feel about it anymore. I feel like I, I'm going to say what I, what, I, what I think with integrity, um, and that is believe whatever you want <laughs> about what happened, literally or not literally. We have to learn to talk about what Easter means because the Jesus story is unexplainable. The Christian movement is unexplainable without the Easter experience. And I believe Jesus' first followers had it. Um, I don't know exactly what it was, but I believe it led them from being people who ran away and hid to people who were boldly proclaiming, there is a better way to be human. There is a better way to, to lead and govern the world. There is a better way to treat your... Like they, they suddenly now are willing to say, Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't, and you can kill us, but we'll keep saying it. And, and I don't think if they just invented some stories that that leads you to that sort of... So I think whatever their experiences of Jesus were led them to be people who are willing to risk everything for the vision of Jesus. Um, so I, I don't mean that as a non-answer. Uh, I just think, I, to me, uh, what we believe, what, what a person believes about the, the empty tomb, literal, not literal, is almost irrelevant if you don't get down to what it might mean to say that this Jesus who was executed by the Roman Empire has been raised up to the right hand of God and is now Lord. If you don't figure out how to talk about that, then all Easter is is a really, really cool thing, if it literally happened. Instead of a political, religious, economic proclamation about how the world should work. And that's what I think Easter is. Does that make sense? Uh, question from the room. What role do you think the pre-Easter Jesus plays into the Trinity? <sighs> Another short one, good. Um, no, here, here's what I think. I think the Trinity is a fourth century response to a question no one was asking in the first century. Um, I think the, the need to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity reflects a misunderstanding of the Jewish tradition because Judaism had no need to somehow make all this fit nice and neatly. They could have simply said, God exists, God's spirit is among us, and now the meaning of Jesus has been taken into the meaning of God. They, they wouldn't have had the need to... So I, I think once we hit the creeds, we are losing the actual pre-Easter Jesus. I love that you used that. That's absolutely wonderful. We, we lose the pre-Easter Jesus when we get to the, I mean, when you look at the creeds, what do you discover about the pre-Easter Jesus? Very few, very few things, right? He was born in a cool way. He died and he rose in a cool way and he went to heaven and now he's coming back someday. Like that's, that's what you get. You don't get anything about this human life that lived and taught and healed and exercised, not like exercise, I mean, he may have, but we don't have, I'm not taking a position on Jesus exercising. Uh, I'm saying exercising unclean spirits. And so I think sadly we lose, we lose the Jesus that was actually compelling in the creeds and in, in the, the formation of the Trinity. Um, and I think it's, it's the Trinitarian formula is, is, it's a very Greek and platonic attempt to explain a Jewish mystery. Um, and so I think sadly we lose Jesus in that a lot. Does that make sense? Um, uh, oh, oh, this is, uh, is the Jesus, Amanda says, is the Jesus of the Gospels the same Jesus of Revelation? If not, why and what do we do with the Revelation Jesus? I would break up with him. Um, <laughs> I'm out on Revelation Jesus. Here's the thing. 
Uh, no, the, the Jesus of the Gospels is not the same as the Jesus of Revelation. Um, and I could, if I could recommend a book on this, John Dominic Crossan uh, had a book come out last year called Render Unto Caesar, and he does a treatment of the book of Revelation. And what he unveils about the book of Revelation is absolutely interesting. So he, in, around the time, so Revelation was probably written in the 90s. Um, in the 60s, um, Emperor Nero, there was a fire in Rome, uh, Nero uh, famously fiddled, they say, uh, during the fire, that, that could be a legend. Um, Nero persecuted Christians as a scapegoat for, you know, he blamed them and persecuted Christians as a scapegoat. Nero was wildly unpopular in Rome and in the West. In the East, they worshiped Nero like a god. And so when Nero, when Nero was about to be deposed and he took his own life, there was a rumor started that Nero actually didn't die. That what happened is Nero fled to the east and he was going to raise an army and he was going to come back to Rome and take the city and become Caesar once again. Take that information, crack open the book of Revelation, and what you have is a late first century, we'll use the word Christian, it's anachronistic. You have a late first century Jesus person who has probably endured persecution who is angry at Rome and wants to see Jesus, like Nero, come back and kill all of his enemies and essentially set up a, a Jesus-y government. I'm so glad people aren't trying to do that today. Um, so glad that you know, people aren't going around the country spreading Christian nationalism with bad music. Uh, you know, I'm just so glad. So glad that's not happening anymore. And so, you know, what you, what you get in the book of Revelation is that, right? That's the picture. But there's also this really beautiful moment. It's almost like the writer knows what he's about to write is a problem. Because there's this picture where, I'm not going to give you the whole context because some of it's weird. But this writer essentially is weeping because no one is found worthy to open these, these seals. Not, not seals, but seals. And... He looks and he sees this, he's told the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the seals. And so he looks for the lion of the tribe of Judah and what he sees is a slain lamb. So when people are like, Jesus came the first time as a lamb, he's, he's a mistake. He's coming the next time as a lion. Well, actually in Revelation, the lion is a slain lamb. The problem is the writer, I don't think, understood what the slain lamb meant is that the risen Jesus who comes to us with his scars does not come to punish his enemies because the risen Jesus adopted the posture of God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so, um, you know, the book of Revelation barely made it. We, we almost had a document called the Shepherd of Hermas, which is also a trip. Um, uh, Martin Luther, who... who uh, he wanted to, to remove several books from the canon and he wanted to throw Revelation in the river. Um, so I, I, I don't take a lot of my theology from the book of Revelation. I understand it as a particular Christian expression that when understood within context is not something that I personally think Jesus would align with or support. But that's what we have in the Bible. We have conversation. We have, I mean, there's a text that says, turn your swords into plowshares. And there's a text by another prophet that says, no, 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 turn your plowshares into swords. And they're like, we just did the other one. Now we have to go back, right? Which vision do you align with? You gotta, that, that's the choice we're faced with. The choice is not, are you going to be biblical or are you not going to be biblical? The choice is you're gonna be faced in the scriptures with lots of decisions. 
Decisions about who God is and who you are invited to be in the world. And if you go down one path, you end up with Christian nationalism and hatred and exclusion. You go down the other path, you end up with what I think is the Jesus of history who flung wide the doors and invited everybody to the table. And, and so the Bible is not this nice, neat, monovocal, speaks in one voice. It is a univocal, multi-voices, wrestling over a thousand years or so, trying to figure out who is God, who are we, and what are we, what are we meant to do with ourselves here in the world. Does that make sense? So that's what I think is going on there. Uh, that one was online, right? So in the room. Yes? Um, a follow-up question to that is, in the book of Luke, when Jesus is about to be tortured and executed, he says, um, let he who does not have a sword sell his cloak and buy one. Seeing, like you said, it seems to go, uh, be antithetical to the rest of Jesus' message. And so I was just wondering how we should yeah. interpret and, and I'm pretty sure the disciples respond with, we got two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And people read that as Jesus saying, you got enough. No, no, I think what Jesus is saying is, that's enough. You're misunderstanding. Uh, so I, I, would, I think the Luke, oh, sorry. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, there's this moment in, before Jesus is arrested where he tells his disciples, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and get a sword, right? Um, I, so I, you know, I think there's a couple options there. One is that's, that's something Luke, that's, that's uniquely Lucan. So that very well could be something Luke inserted because Luke is of that opinion. Um, or it could be Jesus is speaking the way Jesus often did, uh, and they misunderstood him, right? And there are also issues with translation, and I can't remember exactly what the other options are off the top of my head, um, but there are issues with translation, the way some people translate that, because that always comes up in the debate around gun control. Or, well, Jesus said, uh, he also told them to put their swords away, right? So we, we have these alternative pictures. Um, and so when I'm confronted with that, what I generally will do is... is will say which one, which picture fits the Jesus I think that emerges from the rest of the, and, and I don't think Jesus would have ever told people, his disciples to take up swords against Rome. Just for practice, I mean, take away his commitment to nonviolence. Telling 12 guys to grab swords and go fight a legion is really dumb. Um, it's not, it's not going to go very well, right? Um, but yeah, that, that, that is a text that people have wrestled with and translated and retranslated um, and I, you know, not everybody's at this place. I'm at the place where I can say, if that's what Luke thought, I think he missed the mark on that one a little bit. I'm so glad he gave us the prodigal son story, though. That's a really beautiful story, um, which is what we have to do in the Bible, right? We're, we, people are like, you pick and choose, you cherry pick. Of course, everybody does, because there's stuff in there that goes in conflict with each other. So you have to pick. So instead of pretending like we don't, I think we should be proud people who say, yes, we do cherry pick the Bible. We take, I actually had a conversation the other day where somebody was like, well, what about that verse? I was like, I don't like that one. <laughs> oh, you can't just do that. It's like, I just did. That verse doesn't align with where I think the, the arc of Scripture is going. I think the arc of Scripture is leading toward a universal vision of a God who loves, embraces, and makes space for every single human being. And anything, so for me, the gospel is human flourishing. Anything that takes us away from that, I am willing to let go of. Um, and yeah, I find in Scripture again and again visions of human flourishing for everybody. And I want to hold on to those and hold them dearly, and I want to proclaim them and preach them and offer them as healing bombs because they're in there. Uh, online. 
Sorry, I, I get lost in these things. Um, how important do you think it is to combat the erasure of who Jesus really was, a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jewish man by Christian nationalists? Um, in a word, super, two words, super important. It is maybe one of the most critical issues of our day is this rising issue of Christian nationalism. Um, it is, uh, is anti-Christ. Uh, it, it is evil. And it turns Jesus into somebody the historical Jesus never was. I remember my house growing up, we had this picture of Jesus and he had children sitting on his lap and it had like, I think it had the lyrics to Jesus loves the little children. And Jesus has um, like got light hair and he's wearing a, a, a white bathrobe, which would have been terribly dirty with all the dust. Um, and he's got a blue like beauty pageant sash on. Um, looks like he's got, you know, he's had his hair feathered. It's got some Aquanet going on. Uh, if you don't know what Aquanet is, you missed out on a really interesting time in history. And that Jesus doesn't exist and has never existed. Now, I think there's an interesting thing that everybody wants to see Jesus as being like them. Um, but I think we can understand Jesus is a, but this is, the, this is the problem. For Jesus to be like us, he doesn't have to have the same skin color as us. And he doesn't have to be from the same geography as us or speak the same language as us. We have developed this idea that what, what it means to be like something is to make everything the same. And that is boring. This is incredibly boring. Jesus is like us in that he was a real human being. I think Jesus experienced every experience we've had. And some, I think Jesus struggled. I think the temptations of Jesus are about whether or not to pick up a sword. <laughs> I think that's what the temptations are about. They're not about like, should I eat the bread or should I not eat the bread? They're about, hey, are you going to trust the path God is leading you on, which is nonviolent resistance to the empire, or are you going to choose the path, there are lots of people starting to choose it, that is willing to take up swords. If you take up swords, the kingdom can be yours now. You don't have to wait for it, and you don't have to suffer for it. I think that's the temptation. I think Jesus has been there. Um, and if you follow me online, you know like almost every week I'm going to post something about the horrendousness of Christian nationalism because I think it is a threat it is a threat to human decency. It is a threat to rights. It is a threat to equality. It is a threat to human beings because Christian nationalists, I'm going to rant, Christian nationalists have room for one group of people and that are conservative, fundamental Christian nationalists. And they want everybody else out of the way. And I think it's dangerous. And I, I wish there, there are pastors who have some of these politicians in their churches on Sunday morning and they're standing up there and they're not telling them the truth. And I wish they would. Um, I, I've actually said to a pastor who had a prominent church member, if a member of my church were behaving as badly as yours in the public square, I would want somebody to tell me if I wasn't aware of it. I would make a phone call um, because what they're doing is dangerous. So yeah, I think it's... Um, I almost just said it's hella important. Um, and I just said it. So that's how I would frame it. It's hella important to confront Christian nationalism. For those of you here the first time, I don't usually curse uh, in sermons. Yes. Oh, I just literally felt warm when you asked that question. 
What can Jesus' relationship with God tell us about our relationship with God? You know, I do not connect the Jesus of the Gospel of John very much to the Jesus of history because John is a theological, this is who Jesus is for us. But what I love about that Jesus in John is that he essentially says, this is my relationship with God and I want you to have this relationship with God. And I think that's what the historical Jesus was inviting people to. I think Jesus actually um, saw God as Abba, uh, as, as a familiar parent that was with him at all moments. And I think Jesus thought we should, we should and can have that same experience of the divine. What happens so often is doctrines and dogmas get in the way. And we're so worried about believing the right things that we can't just open our heart to the experience of the divine. Does that make sense to anybody else? Like we get so wrapped up in, did I check all the right boxes when I think the divine is like, I'm everywhere. When I try to, when people like describe God, it's like, have you ever seen water? And have you ever seen a fish in water? I think that is our experience of the divine. I think if you were to talk to a fish and the fish were to talk back, be weird. But I think if you were to say, tell us your experience of water, I think the fish would say, what is water? What is water? Because I am one with water. Water is all around me, in me, through me. I live and move and have my being in water. And I think that is who God is. We live, move, and have our being in God. And we have been taught, people have worked overtime to turn off our ability to understand and experience that. Ritual is beautiful, and ritual can open us up to that. But religion, and I'm not one of those people who's like, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm religious. I come to the same place at the same time every single week with all of y'all. I'm religious. But what legalistic, uh, narrow religion can do is it can actually get in the way of experiencing the reality we call God. Does that make sense? Thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll do one more here online. Um, actually, I, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do one that was sent in because um, it will only take about 30 minutes to answer. Um, <laughs> and I, I really thought it was a great, great question. Here we go. All my life, I've been told that Jesus saves, that Jesus died for my sins. So when you posted on the internet, um, atonement theory is an answer looking for a problem. It got me thinking, where did atonement theory come from? Why has it become such a cornerstone of the Christian church? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, you know, people will often, when you, when you deconstruct atonement theory, people will say, well, what about Isaiah 53? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Beautiful text that in its original writing had nothing to do with Jesus. It was likely talking about Israel and their experience going through exile and return. Here's what people don't know, um, because we've left our Jewish roots. And that is that we created atonement theory to make sense of something that um, the Jewish tradition didn't need to make sense of, they already had. And that is their theology around martyrdom. Um, especially during a period in the 160s when um, there was a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV who essentially said, uh, everybody's gonna be Greek and do Greek things. You're gonna have Greek religion. You're gonna eat Greek food, pita for everybody. It's, it's all Greek all the time. And the problem with that was you had, you had, you had these Jewish folks in Israel, Palestine, who uh, didn't eat pork. 
and they weren't comfortable having a statue of Zeus put in their temple. And there were real issues. And so there was essentially a, a, a persecution. And if you read the book of Second Maccabees, which is an intertestamental, they call it intertestamental book, um, there are these really heart gut-wrenching stories of martyrs who are refusing to recant their faith. They're refusing to eat pork. They're refusing to bow to the gods of the Greeks and they're being martyred for it. And within Judaism, because they didn't believe in an afterlife at this period, they, they had to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Can God allow these martyrs who went to their grave faithfully, can God just let that stand? Is that a good God? And enters into the tradition, the idea of resurrection. No, no, no. At first it was just the martyr. God will raise the martyrs back to life. But within that martyr theology, they understood that at times people died for the nation. Because they had this understanding that one, maybe one of the reasons, and, and this is a theology we push back on, but one of the reasons they were suffering is because they had not been faithful to God. And now they were suffering for it. And now these people are essentially bearing the sins of the people because we have been unfaithful and we are suffering. And these brothers and sisters of ours who are bearing the cost of that are dying for the nation. Now, if you take that theology and understand it to be when Mark first writes about Jesus being a ransom for many, and you understand Mark writing after the temple had fallen, Mark writing after they, the people had chosen the path of violence instead of the path of nonviolence and everything had been wiped out. You could see how Mark would want us to understand that Jesus' death was on behalf of the people. If they had watched his death and had believed in the experience and believed his word, they could have avoided their suffering. Right? Do you, do you see how that could work, how that works? So for Paul to say Christ died for our sins, he's not saying Christ died because you broke the speed limit last week. He's saying, we committed the sin of human violence and Christ had already died for that sin had we only believed. And you want to call that an atonement theology. That is one we desperately need today when we live in a country that cannot feed people, that cannot keep people healthy, because they do not have access to health care. The only nation in the world where gun violence is what it is in this country. We're the only nation. We spend more money than every other nation practically combined on our military. Yet we have veterans who are unhoused. We spend more than any other country on bombs and often we will sell them to the highest bidder without thinking about the rep repercussions. Christ died for our sin. And if we do not listen, we will experience the same fate that happened in the year 70. When Jesus brought his disciples, he wasn't talking about the end of the world, he was talking about the end of the age, and he looked, they looked at the temple and they were amazed, and he said, every single stone will be torn down if we do not choose the path of nonviolence. And so I think that yeah, to say that Jesus died for our sins, I believe it. I don't believe Jesus died because I'm separated from God and need somebody to die to make me right with God. I believe Jesus was killed by human sin. By the same human sin 
killed Dr. King by the same human sin that killed George Floyd, by the same human sin of violence and empire that has caused mass destruction on this planet. And so it is really easy and comforting to say, well, Jesus died because I broke the speed limit. And that requires nothing of me. But if I, like the Roman soldier at the end of a mark, if I look at the cross and I see Jesus hanging on it, and if I want to say, this is the son of God, I'm not talking about Jesus' DNA relationship with God. What I'm saying is this is the person who has the vision for how the world should be. And if I'm going to do that and take that seriously, that looks really different than Western Christianity. And so I think we, I want Grace Point to be a place where we take that seriously. And I hope you do too. 